What a wonderful time to be together this morning to open the Word of God together. Would you just bow with me in a word of prayer as we begin our time? Father, we ask that you this morning use your Spirit as you have given it to us and intended to move upon us by the power of your Spirit, leading us into all truth, your Word tells us. Lord, we trust your faithfulness to do so. We trust your faithfulness to lead us where we must go and what you would have for us this day from your Word. So as we study it together, as we look and think about these things, may they have their necessary and purposeful impact by your grace and mercy through the power of your Spirit upon each of our hearts. All to your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke chapter 7. We're going to continue our study through this passage in Luke chapter 7, and my mind is all over the place this morning and trying to get us in our own minds and our own hearts where I think we ought to be as we think about this. And so I just want to maybe begin with this question for us to ponder as we think about it throughout the message and then also as we engage in our communion time. And the question just is simply this, what do you love? What do you love? And and as you're thinking about it in your mind, Ask yourself this question also. How do you know that you love that? What do you love? And how do you know that you love that? I, I want to, to cover this morning a, a rather lengthy section of Luke chapter 7, going from verse 36 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 50. And I want to do that because it's one event. It's one moment in the life of the ministry of Jesus Christ, and really it is rather clear in what it is teaching. And it is really teaching us what I tried to encapsulate in the title for this message, the children of wisdom and foolishness and how they act. Children of wisdom and the children of foolishness and how they act. You remember last Lord's Day as we were here in Luke chapter 7 and we were studying through verses 31 to 35 as Jesus was indicting the crowds who were following him. Of course, everywhere Jesus went, there was large crowds who were hounding him or at least around him. Some were sincere about following him. Others were curious as to who he was. We're not quite sure Uh, at least in the majority, as if they had any kind of desire for Jesus. Of course, the Gospel of John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds more than 5,000 people through the miracle that he did by turning two fish and, or, or five fish and two loaves of bread into the feeding of the many there, the, some words will, some authors think over 20,000 people. But the very next morning, as they search for Jesus, and Jesus confronts them with the reality of what they're really after, not the words of life, but really just the temporal realities of physical sustenance, they all walk away from him, and he's left with just the twelve. And so most, if not all, weren't sincere about following Jesus at all. The crowd is fickle, and Jesus is inviting the crowd who are following him because the reality in their hearts pertaining to them is their lack of receptivity to the truth. They are a fickle people. They are curious about Jesus. They're curious about John the Baptist, as we saw in the text earlier. They were Jesus and John both speaking the truth, they were both proclaiming that there is salvation and salvation is to be found only through repentance and faith and an embracing of the Messiah who was to come, who is Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus validates his own ministry 
through the miracles that he is doing. He he launches into this this massive display of of healing the sick and the blind and the lame as the as two of the disciples of John the Baptist come and ask him questions who are dispatched by John as we saw even back in verse 18. Interestingly enough, one of these disciples could have been Simon who later became uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Andrew who became one of the apostles as Jesus in John's gospel confronts him and John says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and Andrew follows and then goes and finds his brother Peter and says, we found the Messiah. And so we don't know that, but it's rather interesting to even think like that, that maybe one of those disciples of John that were dispatched to Jesus say, hey, are you the one? John's asking that maybe was one who actually became one of the apostles later. Here's this crowd, they're fickle about Jesus. Jesus has validated his ministry. Jesus has went on after that to validate the ministry of John, confirming that John was not only a prophet, but he was a prophesied prophet who was the one who Isaiah had talked about and prophesied about to come and prepare the way, prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. So it was John who was doing that, and John, who was the one who, like I said, pointed to Christ and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, many were flocking to see John. Some had gone out to John, and they were, in fact, receptive to the message of John. They repented of their sins. They were baptized by John, but not the religious elite. They wanted nothing to do with those kinds of things. They, they were curious about John, but they wanted nothing to do with the exercise of what he was preaching. In fact, verse 30 says they rejected God's purpose for themselves. God's purpose is that all should repent and come to a knowledge of him. And yet here is the religious elite, those who would claim a relationship with God by some professed faith and by some activity of their own to accomplish the religious activities at which they said they could be righteous, wanting nothing to do with John the Baptist. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. They rejected John's preaching, and so too they were rejecting Jesus rejecting the very one who could save them. And so Jesus is indicting them, and he makes this indicting comparison that describes them as just curious little brats in the courtyard. They're like little bratty kids who are, who are wanting their own way. They have no interest in truth, even though they claim that they have a right standing with God. And so Jesus says to them in verse 35, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. The opposite is also true. Foolishness is vindicated by all of her children. And so because John came living in the desert and, and was fasting and was isolated really from the people, the religious elite and most of the crowd around them said he was just a madman. He was demon-possessed. Verse 33, Jesus says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine. You say he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. And then, of course, verse 36, Jesus concludes the Son of Man has come, and he's, he's done the very opposite. He was eating with the people. He's, he's interacting with the people. And you say, oh, he's just a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers, friend of sinners. The entire point that Jesus is making is that a person can make claims about being religious all they want. They can speak all kinds of grandiose things and say all kinds of things about their relationship with a so-called God that they say they have a relationship with. They can make all kinds of claims about that and being right in some standing with God, but the reality is the proof's in the pudding. In other words, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. One commentator put it, I read this last week, the plain fact is that when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily enough find an excuse for not listening. That was the majority of the people. 
And so you and I, as we are here this day, must understand as we begin, if people are determined to make no response to the truth, because when you hear the truth, there is an option. You have to make a response. It's calling you to respond. If you will make no response to the truth, then you will remain stubbornly unresponsive no matter what the plea is. If you have no desire for truth, you will remain stubbornly unresponsive to any plea from the truth. And we ought to understand as we are here this morning, that is a very bad response to the truth, to say the least. That is a horrific response. Why? Because wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And it's simply to say, in other words, you sit, you, you sit back and refuse the truth of the gospel no matter what. You sit back and say, I'm all set. Everything's okay. It's all good with me. You hear the truth of the gospel. You hear the reality about your sinfulness. You hear the reality about your own heart. You see the reality in your own life that you cannot live a perfect life. You cannot satisfy a holy God by what you do. The truth of the matter is, in the end, the truth is justified by what it produces and what it does. You reject the gospel. In the end, the truth will still be justified by what it does. You can deny the truth of Jesus Christ. You can leave that truth all you want on the sidelines and say it's not for me, but in the end, you will have trouble denying it altogether. Why? Because the proof's in the pudding. One day, Jesus will gloriously and blazingly enter upon the scene and you will be standing as one who has been found wanting. The children of wisdom and the children of foolishness become clear by how they act. That is to say that the believer embraces the truth and doesn't just throw it aside. The believer isn't just a hearer of the word. The believer is a doer of the word. They don't just throw it aside. They've repented of their sin. They've embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it shows in their love for the Lord. It shows in how they live in their lives in reference to the Lord. It shows in their love. So too with the unbeliever, even one who may boastfully claim that they have some kind of relationship with God, it will show in their lack of love for the Lord. Let me ask you that question again. What do you love and how do you know you love it? That's what we see in this passage before us beginning in verse 36. The children of wisdom and the children of foolishness and how they act. And the contrast really couldn't be more stark from one of them is the religious elite and the other is a social outcast. Opposite sides of the spectrum in any sense of the word, particularly in any sense of the religious Reality of the day. So just follow along as I read this for us, beginning in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. That is, one of the Pharisees was asking Jesus to come to his house, dine with him. And he, that is Jesus, entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. Some of your Bibles say at the table. That's not in the original text. That's added there because that's what he was reclining at. He reclined at the table. That's how they ate. I'll talk about that in a moment. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, 
if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Because she loves much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Now I just want to break this text down in three ways. I want to first look at the scene, then I want to look at the encounter And then thirdly, I want to look how Jesus applies it to them. Let's first look at the scene, verse 36 to 39. Of course, there are three known participants that are taking place in this event. We have Jesus. We know who he is. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Messiah. He's the one whom has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He is the one through whom salvation comes. If it is to come at all, it is the only way it can come. It is through Jesus Christ. He is truth personified. Of course, you have then this woman. Some commentators, you might pick up a commentary on the book of Luke, and you read, and some commentators will tell you that this is Mary Magdalene. That doesn't make much sense, at least in my mind, since she's mentioned by name in verse 2 of chapter 8, and she's named as one whom had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. This woman here is being described by one simple word, a sinner. And of course, that word in ancient Israel was a derogatory term for a whole lot of things, but when it came to describing a woman in that fashion, it regularly indicated that she was a woman who was a harlot. She was a prostitute. We have no biblical indication that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, and why would Luke not name her, at least in chapter 7, and wait until chapter 8, verse 2, to mention her, and simply only mention that she was a woman who had seven spirits cast out of her. That's why I don't believe this is Mary Magdalene at all. So I don't agree that this is Mary, but she is an outcast woman in society nonetheless, as indicated by the words and thoughts of this third person, who is Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee, we don't usually get a lot of names of the Pharisees. Of course, we know Saul, who became Paul, who God saved on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9 tells us, but we don't get a lot of names of the Pharisees. We certainly know Nicodemus, and now here's one named Simon. 
But he was a religious teacher, one who should have known who the Messiah would be because he would have been one who knew the Old Testament. He would have been one who had known the prophecies. He would have known what Isaiah said and what the other prophets would have said, certainly what Malachi would have said. He would have known the prophets and he would have known what the Messiah was going to be doing and certainly Jesus was doing all of that. It was clear. But because Simon rejected the truth, because Simon has rejected God's purpose for himself, Simon doesn't want to accept Jesus. He simply wants to find some kind of confirmatory reason for his own guilty conscience whereby he can therefore disregard Jesus altogether. While the text doesn't explicitly tell us why he invited Jesus to this dinner gathering, He just says he's requesting Jesus to dine with him. It doesn't give us the reason. It's most likely because of who he is and the disdain he has for Jesus just to confirm his own suspicions about Jesus and try to prove, like they were constantly trying to do, prove Jesus or catch Jesus in some kind of incriminating kind of thing so that they could both point their finger at Jesus as a blasphemer and thereby salve their own conscience as those who are right in their own self-righteous arrogance. And so verse 36 tells us that he invites Jesus, and really it's somewhat shocking as you read verse 36. One of the Pharisees were requesting him to dine with him, And you get that connection there. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. That's rather shocking. This is God incarnate. This is God who knows all things. This is God who, in fact, has orchestrated all of this to happen. Jesus knows everything. And we know that already from our study... But Jesus also confirms that he knows everything, even in this text itself, because Jesus answers the thoughts of Simon without Simon ever sharing his thoughts with Jesus. Verse 39 gives us the thoughts of Simon, and Jesus in verse 40 40 and following begins to answer those very thoughts. This is God incarnate in the home of this Pharisee, which really tells us, of the great patience and compassion of God, does it not? I was driving recently with my wife. We had a trip that we were driving for an hour or so, and I said, you know, one of the things that amazes me about the character of God, and probably one of the greatest characters that amazes me at all, is the patience of God. That God is so patient. He knows us intimately. He knows every detail about us. He knows every thought we have, every thing we think before we ever think it. And yet God patiently, compassionately continues to give us grace and mercy. Shocking here in verse 36 that we see that very character of God on display in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus goes to the gathering. Jesus goes to the gathering. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the vileness of Simon's heart. And in spite of his perfect knowledge, he goes patiently, he goes lovingly to expose Simon to his own vileness. What love. What love of God that God would allow us at any moment to see the ugliness of our sin so that we might repent. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, it is the kindness of God that causes us to repent. The kindness of God, the reality that we understand our sin, we see our sin as God sees it, and we understand it deserves every ounce of the wrath of God poured out upon it, and yet God has poured that upon our Savior Jesus Christ. What love that God would be willing to endure our arrogance in order, out of His gracious patience, to reveal Himself to us as the one 
who can forgive our sin-deadened heart. Well, verse 32 builds the intrigue for us. Right? Verse 32, they were like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another saying, hey, we played the food for you, we danced for you, we sang a dirge, but you didn't weep. Right? Jesus is, is drawing the conclusion and he's, and he's building upon it and he's saying to them, listen, this is who you are. And then verse 37 comes along and it gets even more so. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Kind of an understatement, isn't it? The city was full of sinners, wasn't it? But this is a term established for her. It's a term established because she's a drag in society. In the in the original it says it says and behold and behold that's the idea it's 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 a grammatical exclamation just means that everyone who was gathered around was shocked to see that this woman came into the place it was shocking it was stunning this woman would come into the home And you say, well, that seems rather strange anyway. Why would anybody come into the home? Because that's how it was in ancient times. When someone important was at a home for a gathering, they would would usually leave it open so that people who were around there could come and at least see, look in, and even come and and stand from a distance around where they might be eating and stand in the dark shadows if there was just the lamps lit on the table and and they would be able to watch and see in curiosity. I remember when I was in Honduras preaching in one of the small village churches that was there, there were people just curious at who is this gringo who came to talk to us, and people from all over the mountainous area came, and some were just looking in the door. This is kind of the idea. They're not, they're not part of the guests that are there. But they're just part of the crowd around. But normal people would enter that kind of thing. Not not the social outcasts. That's why you get the shock. It's, It's rather shocking that she's there. Because... They know of her in the city. They they know of this woman. She she's not an unknown person. She's not unnamed to all the people who are there. They know who she is. They know what she is. They call her a sinner. It just means she's an open sinner. She's in her life her sin was well known publicly. She was that scarlet letter woman wandering around town. Everything was known of her. They all knew it, and everyone, everywhere she went, they knew it. They despised, they rejected her. She was a complete outcast, particularly from those who should have cared for her the most. I find it rather interesting as I look at this passage that Luke doesn't name her at all. I don't know why that is in in the spiritual reality of why the Holy Spirit allowed that to be, quite possibly, so that Theophilus, the friend whom Luke is writing this to, remember back in chapter 1, the friend that he's saying, I I set out a course to, to, to detail all this so that you would have certainty, so that Theophilus would even consider himself just like this woman. Theophilus, don't think you're any different The Holy Spirit is maybe saying that also to anyone who reads this. We could all put our names there. And wow, shockingly, so-and-so entered the room. This is incredible. Look who walks in, the sinner. No, not just the sinner, the chief of sinners. She has become 
that because she has learned, she's come there because she learned that Jesus is there. Jesus is in the Pharisee's house. Notice verse 37. She comes with something in her hands. A woman in the city, a sinner, and when she learned that he, that is Jesus, was reclining in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Reclining is what they did when they went into one of these places. That's how they ate. They would lean on one elbow, usually probably their left elbow, and their feet would be out behind them because in those days you'd wander around the ancient roads and your feet would become rather dirty from all the dust and sweat and everything else and nobody wanted that near where they were eating and so they would all lay with their feet out the back and they would lean on and talk across the table and eat with their other hand and so she comes to see jesus she comes with intent she's not coming just out of curiosity like the many in the crowd, she comes with intent. She comes with purpose. She comes to express her love for the one who had loved her unto salvation. And she comes with something that is very costly, that would have cost her greatly. She came with an alabaster vial. Alabaster was this semi-transparent white or yellow stone and they would, they would mine it out and they would carve it out into these little uh, thin-necked bottles in which they would put this very expensive perfume in. It was known as alabaster because it was mined in Egypt under, at the town that it was the same name. So, so it's an imported jar. It's highly costly perfume. The word... By the way, for the perfume is marone. Marone. It's it's uh, that's the Greek term used there. Marone. It's it's really something that is a substance that's not oily that evaporates very quickly. That's that's ladies' perfume. Most of it. If you're going to buy finest perfumes today, that's what happens. They're not oily. They they evaporate very quickly and leave no residue on the skin. So this is what she has. She has this maroon perfume in a jar of alabaster. All of it just expresses to us her, her desire to lavish her Lord, this one whom she's come to see. And so she comes in and quietly, verse 38 says, standing behind him at his feet, that's where his feet would have been. She would have been in the shadows And she's weeping, not weeping out of sadness, just weeping out of a sense of real overwhelmed joy that here she is, she can see her heart. One one commentator called this her heart water. Her heart water. She begins to wet his feet with her tears. She keeps wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Everything that she's doing is an expression of heartfelt love for Jesus. Flows out of a heart of humility, a heart of desire that sees herself rightly, a heart of love. Nothing is more precious to her than Jesus. What do you love and how do you know? If you ask this woman, what do you love? She would say, Jesus, how do you know? Because she's doing what she's doing for Jesus. None of this Simon did. She is acting instinctively. She's acting out of a heart of love for her Lord and her instinct, which was led by the Spirit of God, is exactly right. She's just where every sinner ought to be. She's where every one of us who has our heart set right on the things of God ought to be. We ought to be at the feet of Jesus. So she is there standing behind him. Her tears are beginning to wet his feet. And and presumably even not to bother him, not wanting to bother him as her tears are streaming from her face onto his feet, she, she begins to wipe them with her hair. Credibly. 
Her hair often the display of vanity, often the display of pride in being beautiful is used here in deep humility and devotion to Jesus just to wipe his feet. To untie her hair, to display it down in public, that would have been a disgrace in and of itself in ancient Israel. It would be considered as something that only the indecent women would do. Yet here is Jesus. He's allowing it. He's not stopping her. He's allowing her to do it as an outpouring of her heart in an act of love for Him. And so as her tears are dropping down, she's wiping His feet with the hair of her head. She's grasping his feet and holding them close. It says she's kissing his feet. The idea there isn't that necessarily she was kissing them with her mouth, but rather that that, that certainly was probably the case, but that she's continually just, just nurturing him as a man there as his feet, at his feet in that humble posture. So she continues to kiss his feet as she's weeping and as she's wiping his feet with her hair and anointing them, then with this costly perfume. I love the the participles in that verse. She's standing, she's weeping, she's wiping, she's kissing, she's anointing. All humble, all contrite, All just an act, an outpouring of the love of God continuously. Why? Why? Because wisdom is vindicated by her children. You see, Jesus has given this example in in the verses prior to this, and now Jesus is showing it in action. You say, really? Is it does it show when you get back to verse 35 and you say, Wisdom is vindicated by all her children? How do we know that? Jesus launches into this reality right before their very eyes to show the truth of that very principle. Her sins had been forgiven her, and she expresses the gratitude in acts of love for the Lord. Didn't matter the cost. Didn't matter the ridicule. Didn't matter the audience. She overcame even the sense of fear that maybe was welling up in her heart to even go into the place and then to do what she had set her heart to do. All of that paled in comparison to the reality of the one who had forgiven her. And so here is this woman, a child of wisdom. Isn't it interesting that Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is what? Fear the Lord. Reverence, a true reverence for God, a reverence for the things of God. Here is God incarnate, and this woman who is a child of wisdom is now pouring out her reverence for her Lord. The sad part is that foolishness has its children also. Notice verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Here's the... Here's the host of Jesus. Here's the one who called Jesus to his house, who invited him. He claims to know God. He is convinced in his own heart that he is justified before God simply by his own acts of religiosity. But here he is with his thoughts filled with disdain and criticism for the God incarnate. If Jesus were a prophet, he says, then he would know who this woman is, this one who's touching him, this sinner This one unlike me. The only thing that fills his heart is doubt for all that Jesus has done. Doubt for the words of Jesus. Doubt for the acts of Jesus. He doubts that Jesus is the Messiah. He doubts that he needs salvation at all. He doubts that he has a problem before a holy God at all. After all, he's already religious enough.
You see, it's interesting. Simon's righteousness was the kind that would want Jesus to kick this woman to the curb and leave her to herself and leave her in her sinful state. That's the kind of righteousness that Simon has. I'm so righteous, I'm so right with God, leave this sinner alone. Simon's love was actually hate. He saw her come in humbly to the Lord, and he calls her a sinner. Why? Why? Because Simon's just a moralist. That's all he is. He's just a moralist. He he had a cold, dead heart. He's a child of the foolish. He's a child of the ones who hear the Word of God and reject it outright and refuse it. They refuse to do anything with it. Therefore, their conclusion is, what I am doing is righteous and what everybody else is doing is foolish. And so Simon's conclusion is that. I'm righteous and Jesus is not. Because he would know, if he was like me, he would know what I know, and there's no way he knows what I know. Jesus and this woman, Simon declares, are unrighteous. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Simon had no fear of the Lord. No fear of the Lord. He was a fool, and he needed to know it. He needed to know it. And so from the scene, we move to the encounter. Verses 40 to 43. And when Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied almost smugly. You can almost hear it. Say it, teacher. Jesus gently, compassionately says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Of course, Simon answered and said, I I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. The simple parable It's easy for us to understand, right? Two people come, get a loan. One gets a 500 days wage loan. That's what a denarii was, a day's wage. So one gets a 500 days wage loan. The other gets a 50 days wage loan. There's one pile that's here. The other one's 10 times larger. And yet both default on the loan. They're unable to repay the loan. Neither can pay it back. They are debtors who are unable to fulfill their obligation. And yet, out of graciousness, out of a heart of compassion, out of mercy, the one to whom they owe the debt, he simply forgives the debt. The loan to each is forgiven and they owe nothing. But they were indebted to the loan giver. They now have wiped clean. Who will love the giver more, Jesus asks. Who will love the giver more? The point is clear. The point is rather obvious. There there they are. They are both debtors. They are both obligated to pay. It doesn't matter the amount that they're paying. They're both obligated to pay the debt. They're both under the debt. One has ten times the amount of the other. It is a massive debt in light of the normal wage of the time. There's no way you could pay a year and a half's worth of working. And so what Jesus is implying is that in the mind of Simon... The woman is the 500-day wage debtor, and he is the 50-wage debtor. That's what Simon's concluding. 
That's a scenario that Jesus has built. Simon, here's this woman. This woman comes in. Simon says, she's a sinner. I can't believe Jesus would do this. So Jesus draws the scenario to draw them both into the picture so that Simon could come to the conclusion as to who's worse. And Simon comes to the conclusion, well, the one who was forgiven more, that's the worst one. And Jesus says, you're right, Simon. You've judged correctly. You've judged correctly. Simon saw her as more sinful than himself. Quite possibly, in fact, from an outward look, at least as everybody saw a Pharisee, he was societally better. He was more moral. He was cleaner on the outside. But even if that's the case, they're still both just as guilty of the debt. Doesn't matter the size. The fact is, they've both defaulted. It doesn't matter how high class you may believe you are. All man has the same problem. Many like to think like that today. They think, I'm good. I do good things. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a prostitute. I, I don't live like some homeless, destitute drug addict. That's not how I live. At least I I go and try to get a job. In fact, I've been going to church for decades, some might say. I've spent years going to church. Good people don't need Jesus and forgiveness to be with God when they die. Really? Wisdom has its children. So does foolishness. Jesus' point is not only that both are debtors, but both are equally unable to pay the debt. It doesn't matter if you owe a dollar and one owns a thousand dollars. The fact is you're both unable to pay. And what each person needs to realize is that we are all unable to pay. We're all unable to pay no matter how small or how great the debt is. You say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because that's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That verse simply means you cannot pay. That doesn't mean that people can't make some kind of external improvement to their life. People do that all the time. They change and they they change habits and and edit their life in order to, to bring some kind of external change. Even sometimes it's character change. But they can never clear their status as a debtor. Not before a holy God. And until someone comes to the reality about their debt before a holy God, they'll never be forgiven unto eternal life with God. Until you realize you're in debt before God, you'll never go to God and ask Him for mercy to forgive your debt. A simple parable has trapped Simon. And Simon is forced to expose his own heart. The one who understands the debt they have been forgiven. Let me say that again. The one who understands the debt they've been forgiven is the one who loves much. The one who understands the debt they've been forgiven is the one who loves much. That's why Simon says in verse 33, I suppose the one whom he forgave more, almost in a derogatory way, almost in a way to try to squirm out of the reality of what Jesus is saying. Simon's been trapped. Those who have been forgiven most love most. The implication is that how we love shows our understanding of what God has forgiven us. How we love shows our understanding of how God has forgiven us. So let me ask again, what do you love 
And how do you know? The entire point is this. Since each and every one of us who proclaims to have a relationship with God and we understand here in this church to have a relationship with God truly is only through Jesus Christ. So it's not just words. It's not just to say, hey, I love Jesus. Hey, I believe in God. No, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet many are like Simon. Many who are in the evangelical world and maybe even some here are like Simon. You claim it. You say it with your words. Well, Jesus is saying, if that's the reality, then it will show by your love. It will show by how you love. And isn't that exactly what Jesus said to the disciples in John 13? Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in verse 35, John 13? They, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. All men will see with clarity, with the reality of the fact that you have a relationship with me, that it is divine relationship. You're in me by your love for one another. The children of wisdom are those who love. And so Luke gives us the scene. We've seen the encounter And now we'll set forth the explanation. Here it is. The explanation, verse 44 to 50. I know some of you were thinking when we started, there's no way this guy's getting through that many verses. (laughs) Nah, 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 nah. It can happen. Verse 44. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. Isn't that interesting? He looks at the woman and he says, Simon, do you see this woman here? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And the implication there, by the way, is continually been doing that, Simon. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with something very costly, something that cost her great. It was a great sacrifice with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her, to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Why? Because she loved much. She's a child of wisdom. It showed in her heart. It showed in her life. But he who is forgiven little, see, that's you, Simon. You don't think you have anything to be forgiven of. That kind of person just loves little. The woman had done what Simon refused to do. It was custom. It was the custom that when travelers came into a home, their their feet would be washed. Simon didn't even offer. He offered nothing that. He didn't even pull the closest of slaves that he had over to say, hey, wash the feet of this guest of ours. He did none of that. He offered none of it. Simon didn't even give it the courtesy. In fact, he gave Jesus no greeting with a kiss. That was the normal thing. You would greet your guest. He treated him not like a friend, Treated him just like he treated this woman. He brought him no oil that would have been done for any dinner guest. They would put a little oil on your head and rub it in as an anointing. All of those things were common. All of those things were custom. All of those things were the minimum you would do. Simon gave none of it. And all of that just simply said, from the heart of Simon, I really can't stand you, Jesus But the woman, the one that's despised by Simon, she brought her tears, that which came from her own heart, and instead of having a towel with her, she wipes his feet with her hair. Instead of a kiss of friendship, she kisses his feet simply out of devotion. And instead of an ordinary oil, she sacrifices something very costly just to 
anoint the feet of Jesus. Why was it happening like that? Not because you're righteous, Simon. Not because you're righteous. It's happening like that because you don't realize the depth of your unrighteousness. See, I say to her, her sins, Simon, her sins, which are many, In fact, you understand that because you look at her in disdain. You know the sins that she has, at least outwardly, but Jesus knows them all. They have been forgiven. That's why she's doing what she's doing, Simon, because she loves me. She loves much. She knows what she's been forgiven. But you, you, you think you don't have anything, maybe a little bit, and, and your acts will take care of that after all. It, it'll be satisfactory enough. You think you don't need to be forgiven any kind of debt. That's why you love like you love. See, her sins have been forgiven. That's a perfect tense verb, by the way. It means something that has happened in the past that has ongoing realities in her life. God, at some point in the past, the text doesn't tell us, but at some point in the past, she either had an encounter with Jesus, she heard the message of Jesus Christ, she heard the gospel, maybe it was through, the, maybe it was through John. We don't know, but she has repented of her sins. She has placed her faith upon Jesus Christ, and her sins have been forgiven her. How do we know? Because she loved much. She understands what debt she had. She understands that she could never have paid that, and the proof of her forgiveness was shown in how she loves Jesus. But the one who's been forgiven little, Simon, the one who believes that their debt is so small that it doesn't take much forgiven, if any forgiveness at all, to get rid of it, shows how they love also. They love very little. I want us to think about something this morning. Why is it? Why is it within evangelicalism so many professing Christians often show so little love for Christ? Why is that? Well, this text tells us it's because they don't understand the great sinners they are. They don't understand how sweet and complete Christ's forgiveness is. And because oftentimes they don't understand that or we don't understand the completeness, we don't contemplate the debt that Christ has paid for us. Because of that, we love so little. Christians treat the Lord much like Simon treated the Lord. Jesus says to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. No sweeter words could ever be heard. Imagine what her heart would have resonated. No sweeter words, and it draws the attention of the others, really, at the table. Notice verse 49, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin?" All of a sudden, the people make the connection. The money lender of the parable who released the debt is not simply God. In their minds, in this big picture God, only God could forgive sins. They understood that. But God is Jesus who is forgiving sins. That's the connection they make. Who is Him who is this man who's forgiving sins? God with us. This is God in our midst. You can only imagine in that very moment, each one of them are checking their debt. How much of a sinner am I? Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. <laughs> what a gospel presentation. To all of those in his hearing, your faith has saved you. They had all come there thinking they could save themselves. They could just be righteous. 
Just do the righteous things. And Jesus comes in and says, listen, you need to understand something. There's no way to get to glory without salvation. And the only way to be saved is by faith. You must believe in me. Woman loves Jesus. Simon doesn't. He doesn't love Jesus. and Therefore, he hates this woman. Listen, beloved, we cannot forget this principle. Forgiven people, forgiven people, those who are truly forgiven, people of wisdom, love God and love his people. Forgiven people love God and they love his people. Those who are forgiven much love much. You say, really, pastor, is that true? Yeah, listen, listen to what John says. First John chapter four, verses 19 through 21, and then we'll... We'll just close this down. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Children of wisdom are vindicated by how they love. Jesus said in John 15, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. I always always marvel, I shouldn't marvel, but I always marvel at how God brings us to the very text he wants us in when it comes time for communion. No greater love has this than one laid down his life for his friends. That is the picture, beloved, we have in our communion. Great love. The love of God for great sinners like us. Gives himself for us. Do we love him like that? Do we love Jesus Christ like that? Are we children of wisdom? The love of God for great sinners. That's the unfailing test of our faith. Paul said to the Corinthian believers, listen, you need to test yourself, see if you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself. What's that test? How do you love? How do you love? Let's pray together. Father, What an indictment to my own heart. Think of the reality of what it means to be saved by you and to live for you. How often that indictment is stinging because of the constant failure to love as you have loved me. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve for you to even shine one second of grace and mercy and patience to us. And yet, and yet for your glory, for your honor, for your eternal praise, you have decided in your wisdom to save the dead, those who are spiritually lost so that they would would reflect that grace and glory in their lives as they walk in obedience to you and you, by your grace, have empowered us to do so through your Spirit. 
Each time we fail, your forgiveness is lavished upon us and we we run to you and we say, Father, forgive us for we have sinned and you lavish forgiveness upon us because of the sacrifice of your son that was sufficient to pay for each and every sin. How dare we in our foolishness live as children of foolishness when we have been given Airship in the kingdom of your dear Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we think about this, as this weighs upon us as it ought, and we think about how we can exercise that understanding of what we have been forgiven and exercise that in love to one another and to others around us and to the lost that they might come to know what we know, the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray and plead with you on behalf of those who are here with us who do not know Christ. Some growing up in the homes of beloved Christian families here, some who are just here because they're curious, Some who maybe even have been with us a long time. Lord, may they truly come to know Jesus Christ. May they repent of sin, turn to Christ, stop relying on their own righteousness. Rely only on the righteousness that you accept. Your sons, the righteousness of God that they too might know life. We'll praise you. We'll sing praises to you. We'll honor you because you are worthy of it. Eclipse us. Glorify yourself that others might see you in us. All for the praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.